Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of New Books in Public Policy. And today we welcome Jonathan Rothwell, author of A Republic of Equals, A Manifesto for a Just Society from Princeton University Press. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. So if you would, before we talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do and what brought you to this particular project. Sure. I'm the principal economist at Gallup. I've been at Gallup for roughly four years, and I spend my time doing consulting on a variety of projects, including some novel survey collection and research for clients such as the Gate Foundation, Lumina Foundation, the Midyear Network in a recent project. And uh, I spend the rest of my time doing research and writing on anything ranging from uh, politics and and what people are telling us in our polls to uh, economic topics such as uh, why U.S. productivity growth has been slowing in recent years and uh, also this book. And uh, this book is is about income inequality, as, as we'll discuss. It came out of a long-standing interest, I'd say goes back at least to the year 2000 when I was uh, an undergraduate and just starting to think deeply about politics as when that presidential race was happening. It was Al Gore against George Bush with Ralph Nader bringing up a lot of topics related to income inequality and uh, having a, 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 what struck me as a very interesting critique of, of U.S. economic society. And uh, that led me down uh, uh, quite a long path that has, let, has brought me to where I am today. I, I changed fields, got out of science, and got into economics, first through a master's degree, and then I did a PhD in, in public policy at Princeton, where I got to study economics as well as sociology and political science, and then worked at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. for seven years, writing and thinking about a, a lot of these issues, mostly through the context of uh, cities and the economies of cities and the ways that cities structure economic opportunity. So now in this book, you're you're interested sort of in national patterns overall and, and particularly interested in rising inequality in the United States in the context of slow economic growth. You made reference to that earlier. And so in the book, you walk through arguments about the causes of those things, the consequences of them, uh, in particular consequences as you see it for a democratic society itself. And then finally, you point us to possible remedies. So I wonder if we might simply walk through each of those, talk a little bit about causes and effects, and solutions. But before we do that, I wonder if you might briefly just let listeners know what we're talking about here. What is this growth inequality problem that concerns you? That's a great starting point. Uh, so there's yeah, there, there, there's a famous paper by the late economist Alan Kruger, which has the title along the lines of uh, inequality, too much of a good thing, question mark. And um, 
that kind of sums up you could say uh, the uh, uh, one way of thinking about inequality that I, in, in through the economics literature that that I find compelling is that there's there should be some income inequality because there are differences in, in you know, fundamental and trivial ways between people that matter in terms of how much they're going to earn, what sorts of careers they pursue, how much education they acquire, and how productive they are at whatever they end up pursuing because of personality differences, because of preferences, because of lifestyle. Uh, you know, there are many ways which people contribute to the economy. And and so the fact that there that there is some level of income inequality, I don't think should concern anyone. But what is troubling to me and many people is that in the United States, we have double, triple the level of income inequality that is observed in countries in Northern Europe and Western Europe, other democratic societies, uh, also in East Asia, where there is also the structures of markets and people are rewarded based on the performance and talent as they are here, but yet there's profoundly less income inequality. And so what the, you could say the starting point of this book is, is what makes the United States so unique among rich democracies in terms of its level of inequality. So to put this in context for your listeners, the latest estimates from Tomas Piketty and his collaborators estimate that the top 1% of income earners uh, control roughly 20% of pre-tax income in Western Europe and Northern Europe. It's more like 6 to 10, maybe 12, 13% in some of the more, some of the most in, unequal countries. So the U.S. really does stand out. And I think there are some uh, special circumstances uh, when it comes to the U.S. economy and our history that help explain that, that have been not altogether ignored, but not told in the way that I've put it together here. So before we turn to, to, to your explanations for, for what it is that's, that's going on here and why it matters, um, you early in the book sort of uh, systematically uh, confront uh, some of the more common explanations for uh, high income inequality, right? Trade, immigration, uh, corporate greed, the idea that sort of American corporations themselves uh, and uh, declining marginal tax rates, among other things. What's wrong with those explanations? Well, let's start with uh, yeah, one. We'll do one at a time. We can start with with corporations because right? I think that's one that has been in the news a lot lately. With the Democratic primary, you, you hear it brought up. I think it's fair to say that, that, that some of the most prominent candidates tend to blame corporations for the high levels of income inequality in the United States, and. One of the the biggest problems with that explanation is that income inequality has increased from 1980 to roughly 2014 in a, in a, in a pretty massive way. So about 1980, their estimates suggested about 10% of all national income went to the richest 21%, and then that went to 20%, you know, roughly 35 years later. And so during that period of fairly rapid increase in inequality, what we've seen is that corporations have actually played a, a smaller role in the economy than they used to. 
so it used to be the case that 80, 90% of business income was generated by U.S. corporations back in the late 70s, early 80s. And that has fallen to closer to 65, 60%. And what has replaced it has been the rise of so-called S-corporations and partnerships. And so these are not the kinds of major multinational entities with, that are publicly traded that uh, people tend to talk about uh, when, it, when placing blame on rich businesses for, for rising income inequality. They're not tapping into global markets. Many of them are regional players that are in almost inherently domestic industries like real estate, medical services, legal services, financial services, car dealerships even. Uh, and they're, they're not you know, taking advantage of lower trade barriers that have emerged over the last few decades. What they're really, in, in my view, cashing in on are regulations that they've shaped through their own industry lobbying efforts that end up limiting competition and the fact that they're local and regional in operation has actually given them an advantage in that regard because they don't have the scrutiny of the national press looking at them and and you can tilt uh, a state or local election with a much lower level of spending and effort than you can uh, national election. So that's so that I mean that's not a story of big business, right? Whatever we mean by that, but it's still a story of business, right? So why do you think sort of the prevailing narrative, and I think this is more common among the on on the left than the right, the prevailing narrative of of sort of corporate greed and deregulation going along with it, and maybe declining tax rates. Why is that not a a satisfying explanation for you? Well, the the focus on corporations. It, it tends to then imply that corporate tax rates are part of the explanation and corporate governance structures and the the perverse incentives of the stock market and trying to maximize returns for shareholders instead of, say, uh, valuing workers or the community. Uh, th that Those are sort of the explanations that you tend to hear from the left. Also, the declining power of unions. <clears throat> Now those are all, you know, well and good. I don't have a strong aversion to you know thinking deeply and critically about the way those things are set up, but it can't. It's it's not a satisfying explanation to me in for several important reasons. One is that when when you think about the fact that these are not publicly traded corporations, that immediately takes off the table this idea that it's their shareholders pressuring them, and that's why they're comp. The, you know, this, that's why the profit margins are so high or other th things you might think about you know, being negative side effects of that. Also, they're, they've never been unionized. It's, you can't say that the decline of unionization and manufacturing has made it easier for doctors to have high salaries or lawyers to have high salaries when they never employed unionized workers and they don't now. Um, same with hedge funds. Uh, it's not the case that the, the union story is that you've got rich CEOs who are squeezing their workers in order to get higher compensation for themselves. But with these small hedge fund operations, there's no 
there's no worker. The, the workers are also very highly paid and compensated. Uh, and in fact, the way that some of these entities are, are structured, it's kind of an arbitrary process whether the owner takes salary as a worker of the organization or is through a pass-through uh, business owner. And so all of these conversations about how to deal with the problem are, are focused on an older model of the economy that is based on the, the large multinational C corporation. So let's, so one of, one of the other explanations you, you uh, uh, dismiss is the wrong word, but, but you de-emphasize uh, is the notion that part of why we're seeing increasing inequality is, is increasing returns to human capital, the skills gap, increasing returns to education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why don't we use that as sort of a segue into to talking about who are the 1%? If I'm going to talk about sort of who are the people who are at the upper end of that historically high income distribution, what do we know about who they are? What do we know about the industries in which they are rooted? And how does that help us maybe make sense of how to understand what is going wrong in the economy overall? Yeah, yeah great question. So there, the, the people who are in the 1%, are you know, if you look at it on an occupational basis, there are first of all there are roughly 450, 500 occupational categories that the Census Bureau tracks, and when you rank all of them by the percentage who are in the one percent, the number one occupation is doctors. So they comprise just doctors. They're called the, the official label is physicians and surgeons. They're combined together. They comprise roughly 18% of the top 1% in the 2017 American Community Survey, which is a, a, a survey of 1% of the U.S. population. So they're, they're the largest group. Uh, among the largest groups are also CEOs, which won't surprise anyone, but it, I think it might surprise people that CEOs only comprise 11% of the 1%, whereas some people might think they would be 80 90% of, of top earners. Uh, also in the top five would be lawyers and financial managers. Uh, not too far behind them, but not in the top five would be dentists. Uh, there are all, uh, other occupations and, and industries that are overrepresented uh, would include you know, real estate brokers, uh, certain, uh, many workers in, in the financial sector, particularly the, the sector of finance that is not commercial banking, but it, it deals with securities and commodities trading, which would include hedge funds. So a lot of those those categories, we're talking about people who have often had many, many years of advanced education, have very particular kinds of skill sets. So why is that not simply uh, them earning in proportion to their talents, their capabilities, and their skills? But it's certainly a reasonable hypothesis to think that that may be the explanation. And uh, as somebody who studies labor economics, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the advantages of education in the labor market, the advantages of skills that are both what you could call cognitive skills, which would include IQ, other sorts of measures of intelligence, how people do on things like SAT scores and standardized exams. And then non-cognitive skills, which would include aspects of personality that have proven to be valuable in the labor market. So this would include conscientiousness, you know, self-discipline, 
emotional stability, enthusiasm. These are things that have been measured very well in the psychological and economics literature and, and are valuable. And if you add all those things together, you can think of that as the human capital of an individual worker. And those things certainly matter and explain some variation in the income distribution. But what's interesting is that they don't explain the, the very high incomes. And, and so there are several ways that economists have looked at this, this kind of thing. And, and then I'll, I'll explain how I looked at it in the, in the context of the book. So there's some research that has tracked individuals over time and found out what happens to their earnings as they switch industries. And what's obvious is that people that enter certain industries like legal services and financial services, particularly the branch of financial services that deals with securities, commodities trading, receive a very large pay increase when they enter those industries. And that pay increase disappears as soon as they exit those industries. So the implication is that it's not an inherent property of the individual, but rather it's something about the way those industries are structured that uh, compensates people above and beyond their individual attributes. Another very compelling example uh, that comes from, in this case, the Netherlands, was a study that looked at what happens when people are randomly assigned uh, to enter dentist dental school, because in the Netherlands, there's strict uh, re- regulations on the number of dentists, and people who are interested in becoming a dentist have to win a lottery in order to go to dental school. And what these economists did is is look at what happens if, if you lose the lottery and you don't get to go to dental school, and you, you compare the incomes to people who, who did get to go to dental school, who otherwise have the same test scores and other attributes. So there was no you know, difference in, in their individual abilities. It was really just the luck of whether they got the lottery ticket to get in or not. And they, what they found is a very large pay premium in favor of the dentists. And so I've taken the, the, the kind of insights from those, those sort of approaches and looked at, at things like uh, the cognitive scores of, of people on uh, on a exam that was administered by the OECD across a large number of developed countries, including the United States, called the it's called the PIAC. And what they did is is it's it's similar to what one of your, many of your listeners may have heard of is the PISA exam, which is for 15 year olds. The PIAC is for adults, ages 18 uh, all the way up to 65, and it's meant to measure the cognitive skills of of the workforce across the world in as many countries as as they can and and what you see here is that there are there is some evidence from from these data that doctors and lawyers and CEOs um, are above average in terms of their cognitive ability but they score below many other types of professionals that are not in highly regulated occupations where they where there are where there's more competition, where the entry barriers are lower. So, for example, engineers, software engineers, computer programmers, uh, workers in, in, in the hard sciences, biology, chemistry, for example, where there aren't those kinds of licensing restrictions, they tend to have at least as high 
cognitive ability uh, as measured by these exams, but they're paid significantly lower. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you put these these data together in kinds of systematic ways, you can estimate uh, what the premium is for certain occupations. And inevitably, it for for the ones that are at the top of the one percent in the U.S., there's a a pretty massive pay premium even after controlling for uh, anything you can measure about their uh, you know, productive characteristics. So, in, I mean, that get that gets at what a maybe a, a a foundational myth that that we as a nation have been telling ourselves right that you know work hard you play by a rule you will be rewarded in proportion to your effort and your abilities but that also is is a challenge to at least a couple of schools of economics right that operate on the the, the principle that there that that one of the ways in which markets work is by helping us sort out who are the people who have the greatest talent skills and abilities and reward them proportionally. And in both of those instances, you are saying that the evidence for that correlation is not particularly strong, but is instead sector-based or occupation-based or in, in industry-based, correct? That's right. So you can still find evidence that the individual skills matter in, in, in the kind of data and analysis I'm talking about. But then there's this other factor, which is also really important, and that's whether you're in a special industry or occupation that enjoys what I consider to be political privileges that come from the ways that they've shaped the regulatory system and, and captured opportunities that other people don't have and then and then that also so they're overpaid relative to their skills uh in my estimation but then that also suggests that there are large groups of people who are underpaid relative to their skills and so that would include preschool teachers many educators uh nannies domestic workers waiters and waitresses uh, people who are in occupations that are forced to compete with very large numbers of people um, and for one reason or another you know have you know, wages that are below what their skill level would suggest and and some of them in you know are are jobs that are considered low skilled jobs and and they're considered low skilled jobs because you don't need a lot of training to become a waiter or waitress or to wash dishes in a kitchen. But that doesn't mean the people themselves don't have valuable skills that if applied to a different industry would not re reward them to a greater extent. So is, is part of your story here one about effective versus ineffective lobbying? I think you could say that is part of it. So I, I think of it, you know, broadly as political power, but I think lobbying is one of the important channels through that which it happens. And so I spend a fair amount of time toward the end of the book talking about the ways that you know three specific groups of workers, uh, doctors, lawyers, and financial sector workers, particularly in, in hedge funds, have benefited from um, distortions to the rules that govern competition for their services. And I think yeah, for law, doctors and lawyers, it's it's very clear that their state lobbying operations, which are channels of their large national operations, so in the case of doctors, the American Medical Association and their state affiliates for 
for lawyers, it's the American Bar Association and their state affiliates. They're often the largest spending organizations in, in their states. And if you look at data on lobbying and on you know, campaign spending, they're typically at the top of the list. And I have a few case studies looking at you know, specific campaigns that they've operated to block changes to the law that would empower other professionals to provide some of the services that are currently under their complete control. And they, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, didn't want that to happen and spent a lot of money and issued a lot of press releases to just try to stop that. And then were successful in at least you know, some of the cases that I discuss. You're listening to New Books in Public Policy. We're speaking with Jonathan Rothwell, who's the author of A Republic of Equals, A Manifesto for a Just Society. Um, so there's a, a, another sort of large important strain to the book here, and I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. Um, in the conversation that you were just having about sort of identifying these particular occupations that have uh, advantage themselves in the political system. You make explicit note of the ways in which a lot of this seems to be uh, white educated males who have succeeded in creating policies that wind up overinflating their income relative to their cognitive abilities. You also then, in looking at all of these patterns overall, this this uh, uh, radical increase in income inequality over the last number of decades, uh, along with, with slow growth and the stagnation or decline of large swaths of the population, the political effects of those economic circumstances. So I wonder if you would, would talk about why this inequality worries you so much and what is the racial component to it? Yeah, great questions. So I'd say that the main reason that this kind of inequality worries me is because it's unfair, or it strikes me as unfair, and I think it strikes many people as unfair. And this, I'm just going to say something that's not in the book, but I wish it could have been in the book. It came out just after I was finished writing. We just at Gallup launched a, a partnership with some researchers at the Norwegian School of Economics, where in 60 countries, they ran some experiments about fairness of the income distribution. And essentially, they, they, there are two big findings for me that came out of it. One is that most people around the world think the current distribution of income in their country is unfair. Uh, but in this experiment, they uh, varied two conditions. One were a, a worker is do, two workers are doing the identical are doing identical tasks. One gets paid $6, the other gets paid zero. And the question is, how much do you give to the person who got zero? And most people, when they're told that situation, will give a lot of money to the person with zero, uh, basically half of the money. But then there's another scenario where they're told that the person who earned $6 did better work that was more valuable. And then they're asked, well, how much do you give to the person with zero? And they, they give some of the money, but they don't give they don't give it equitably. They're very comfortable with having income differences based on merit. And and that is true around the world. Just about every country that they, they, that we looked at, and this includes every continent in the, in the world, people were comfortable with income differences that are based on merit. But they were not comfortable with income differences that were arbitrary. And so I think they would also be uncomfortable with income differences that are based on political power, because that's a, not based on merit. And so I think you know, I just say all that as context is is that when people have the perception that things are unfair, I think that's going to create a lot of political problems. And I think that explains 
um, uh, much of what has been the political resentment on both the left and the right over the last several decades, where we get arguably uh, populists. I, I, I describe. I would characterize populists on the right as pointing the blame toward, to some extent, uh, elite liberals and multinational, you know, globalists, as they may refer to them. But I'd say more pointedly to foreign countries and foreign competitors. So that would include immigrants and trading partners. So the camp, I think the campaign of Donald Trump uh, in 2016 really made it clear that the biggest source of problems for the, for the United States are, are countries like China and Mexico, and whether it's through trade or immigration. And then- And excuse me, and not, yeah, not just a nationalist in that regard, but a white nationalist, right? That, that's important, is it not? I think that is important, and it's, it was important in you know in, in several ways. And I'm, I'm going to get into the the, the race gotcha. Sorry. A bit in a, in a minute, but um, just to finish the thought on um, you know populism in general, I think on the left, the populism has taken the form of anti-corporate, arguably anti-business perspective, but it's I'd say it's been channeled into dissatisfaction with corporations in particular. And I think that comes from this legacy of you know, the mid 20th century where the corporations truly were the dominant source of income from businesses and uh, you know, union conflicts were, were much more prominent and prevalent than they are now. I think we're, we're still sort of stuck in that uh, dynamic, um, which I don't find particularly helpful for the reasons we discussed at the beginning of the the podcast. But those, so we've had those two polarized groups of, of populists on the right and the left that are that are deeply unsatisfied with with the economy and and the, the fact that you know income inequality has been increasing and growth has been slow. Um, and then, so that creates opportunities for to tap into. You know, this this long history uh, that the U.S. has struggled with of uh, the kind of underlying current of white supremacy, and and so I spent a long, I spent a fair amount of time in the book talking about the ways that the political power and the economy, in, in particular, has been stacked against African Americans and uh, the roots of that, uh, and I, th- I think that's one of the key ways in which the United States. Is is different from from Europe and and from East Asia. Uh, none of those countries had a history of slavery. Uh, none of them had anything like you know the Jim Crow system that emerged after Reconstruction uh, and really got going in the in the early twentieth century, which systematically cut off African Americans from participation in markets. And just stepping back for a second on. You know the the principles of that. You might want, the no, the notion I have of republic of equals includes uh, you know strong <laughs> commitment to political equality, and and that I think has to include access to markets, and I, I think that's been a neglected aspect of political equality, um, and it's been one that has been uh, particularly problematic in the case of African Americans because. There, going back to you can look. You can look at housing markets. You can look at markets for professional services. Really, any market that matters, they were systematically shut out of uh, in the the at least the first eighty years or fifty to, uh, yeah, fifty years of the twentieth century. 
And uh, in the case of housing, zoning laws emerged in the 1920s that helped uh, cement all white versus all black neighborhoods and made it very difficult for African-Americans to buy properties in white neighborhoods. And these, these were layered on restrictive covenants and, and other kinds of legal arrangements that really made it impossible for, for African-Americans to, to move into white neighborhoods. And zoning laws are allowed to exist today uh, in, in, because they're not explicitly racial, but they have, a, a, I believe, a strong negative effect on, on African-Americans and are more prominent in the, the types of, of cities where uh, that were recipients of the black migrations. And, and uh, what they do is they cut off apartment complexes, they cut off more affordable housing in, in rich neighborhoods and in uh, near high-performing schools, and basically make it impossible for uh, lower-income people to participate in, in that jurisdiction's housing market as, as an equal buyer or seller. So as we as we work our way to our last few minutes here, Jonathan. So you've you've talked a little bit about one of the categories of solutions that you offer in the book. What you what you put under the umbrella of market access reforms uh, to housing markets, as you've just talked about, to education, to professional services, looping back to to the diagnosis piece, to healthcare, to lawyers and financial advisors. You also offer in in that that section on solutions uh, a glance at sort of better regulation, which folds into some of those issues, but also a stronger media. I wonder if as we we uh, conclude here, I wonder if you could share your thoughts about how that plays into both these these economic, political, and uh, sort of racial divide issues. Sure. So I think we have a a real cultural challenge in this country because of the legacy and reality of of segregation by class and by race and that's created also partisan segregation and led in i think in very important ways to distrust of our fellow citizens and and and, and sort of holds us back in a way that you know, more homogenous countries that don't have that kind of segregation are, aren't dealing with, and U.S. segregation really is 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 especially high, and so I think that's the underlying fundamental problem. But it's been manifested in a bifurcated and overly partisan media environment uh, that you know creates narratives that placate people's political preferences and cultural biases without challenging them or educating them uh, as to you know, other ways of seeing the world. And so that's a real concern of mine. And uh, you know, I don't think it's an easy problem to solve. We're actually thinking about it, a lot about it at Gallup because we're partnering with the Knight Foundation to, to study these kinds of things. I think higher quality media that you know, comes across as as more objective presents facts in a clear and compelling way without hyperbole and spin can be potentially helpful. But uh, we are very far down a road of of people selecting their media to to suit their preferences, and so it's a real concern. 
You are listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of New Books in Public Policy, and we have been speaking with Jonathan Rothwell, author of A Republic of Equals, A Manifesto for a Just Society from Princeton University Press. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me.